0: The Pinball Network is online, launching Pinball Innovators and Makers Podcast.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Pinball Podcast focused on the innovators and makers who are crafting homebrew, custom, and re pinball machines, the technology that makes these personal projects possible, and the companies helping with these journeys. Custom pinballs are a deeply personal and technically challenging undertaking, requiring time, money, knowledge, and most importantly, the desire to make it happen. I'm Dan Rosenstein, your host. Join me and let's go under the play field and see what's needed to make a custom pinball possible. Hello, listener. Every month I try to target the podcast between half an hour to an hour to be respectful of your time. This month, we've got an innovative maker who went from maker to market, and his story is so interesting, so unique, so technical, and he's so fun to talk to that I want to get his full story in. And the only way to do that is to give him the time that he deserves. So join me as we go under the playfield with this innovative maker. Today, I have Nick Baldridge, a quite an impressive a pinball innovator and maker who went from a individual maker to market and has production solutions uh, already in the pinball community. Um, He's with four amusement only games. Nick, with, with that intro, why don't you give a a, a quick further info about you and then we'll get straight into the interview.
0: Sure. Um, Thanks Dan for, for having me on and, and talking with me. Um, So I have uh, been playing pinball for uh, The majority of my life, I remember uh, playing when I was four years old um, and have always been fascinated uh, with the mechanics, the electronics, the integration of rules uh, and uh, mechanical action. So um, I started acquiring games and and fixing them and became fascinated with electromechanical games specifically, uh, and particularly bingo pinball. Um, So for those unfamiliar, bingo pinball is uh, a very, very complex electromechanical pinball device. Um, And uh, just figuring out how the electromechanical computers work inside those was uh, really fun and really fueled my passion for. fixing machines. And uh, I spent about 10 years uh, repairing machines in in people's homes uh, and then started working on uh, building games as well uh, during that time.
1: So Nick, uh, that's an awesome start to the journey. Before we get to that, because there's actually a lot to unpack there and a lot that I wanted to cover on this podcast. So um, from from when you were four, you got interested in 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 pinball. Now, and then you jump to starting to buy machines and starting to fix up machines and have an interest in ems. Was there a gap between when you were four and went and started buying <laughs> machines and fixing them to, um, to, and and so was it in your in your uh, all, all jokes aside was it in your like teenage life or in your early adult life where where you started to to get interested in in, in bingos and early ems and by the way let me say I'm a huge em fan as well um, I have an em um, and I've actually learned more working on my em than I think on any of my my other systems especially since I knew how to do digital electronics um, for quite some time but I actually had to learn analog electronics quite quite well to to, to understand the em anyways go go ahead.
0: Uh, yeah, so I, I've been playing pinball all my life. Uh, going to any arcades that I could, I always would stop in. And and if I was in, you know, in an area with an arcade, and especially uh, as I was growing up, uh, you know, malls were very popular. So we'd go to the mall, check out the arcades, see what's in there. Um, they were in, uh, you know, everywhere—convenience stores, uh, different uh, types of department stores, and so forth. So uh, anywhere there was a pinball machine, if I had quarters in my pocket. I would be playing. Nick, um, what, what region of the country did you grow up in? Uh, so my father worked for Kmart. And so we moved all over kind of the Eastern United States as a kid.
1: Okay. And it's uh, Eastern United States. So that's pinball was generally legal in, in most of the places you live. So yes. Yeah. yes. Okay. Keep, keep, keep going now that we've established that. Um,
0: so uh, I grew up in the, in the eighties, late eighties is when I, you know, got more autonomy and then you know 90s and so forth so um played all those games as they came out and you know just really loved them um and uh i also am fascinated with uh video games and arcade games and so forth and uh different uh ways that arcade game mechanics and especially rewards are integrated with uh, pinball. So, um, you know, seeing kind of how the development uh, of one influenced the other over time was also very interesting. Um, you know, in, in that era. Yeah. It's,
1: it's, it's interesting that there's always the, you know, let's call it the meme, of folks saying that, that arcade killed uh, pinball. And, you know, for a couple of years it did, but you're, you're, you're spot on arcade and and video games actually influence. And if you look at, you know, fast forward to today to modern certain JJPs and, and multimorphic machines um, as, as, as an example, you, you definitely can see the arcade and video influence. Um, So, so what was the first machine that you either bought or repaired and what, what was the order of that and how did that go?
0: So, um, my wife worked with uh, this guy, Steve Smith, and he had a few games and invited me over to to play one day. And uh, he had a couple of bingos in the back. Um, so learned how to play the bingos and opened one up for me one day. And he had, you know, a little problem and I could read schematics. So um, I sat down with them and, you know, said, oh, it must be this little spot and you know immediately i became addicted to (laughs) repairing machines uh so i started looking for one of my own picked up a uh pop a card which is the add version of drop a card Mm -hmm. from Gottlieb, um and loved it just so great uh at the at the time we were living in 800 square feet so that was (laughs) the only machine that was possible until i discovered That there were games made in the 1930s that fit on a countertop, (laughs) so I could I could get one of those, slide it under, pop a card, pull it out when I wanted to play, um, and on and on. So eventually we moved and had more space.
1: Now uh, it's it's interesting that your your first kind of home um home use. uh, 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 example was was a bingo, and you said you learned how to play, play on the bingo. Y- why don't you tell the listener a little bit different, you know, what's different about playing on a bingo compared to playing on a, let's call it an other pinball machine?
0: So uh, other people have compared bingo pinball uh, to flipper pinball or amusement pinball to uh, chess versus checkers. So in bingo pinball, you're typically uh, spending a lot of time considering how you want the ball to travel before you plunge and once you plunge controlling the ball's movement by shifting the physical cabinet in different ways um, is crucial um, so many people will step up to a bingo pinball which has no flippers and assume that all you have to do is just plunge a ball Five times and you're done, you know. And it's it's plinko, it's luck. Uh, there's no skill involved. But actually, the opposite is true. There is a ton of skill involved. Um, being able to walk the ball from one side to the other just by bouncing on posts, um, swerving a ball out of a hole that it's trying to go into. Uh, it's a very physical game, and it's very interesting because of the weight of the cabinet. The balance is very different. The way all the anti-cheat mechanisms work um, are uh, a lot more um, difficult to counteract than it is on a, on a flipper game. Um, but the, the basic goal, you're trying to get three, four, or five in a row on the bingo card on the back glass. Easier said than done. Um, and there's different mechanisms that are built into different games that allow you to do things like uh, completely physically change the layout of the bingo card or move different numbers from uh, one position to another uh, under player control. Uh, so the rule sets for these games are just wildly complex mm-hmm. when compared, especially with flipper games. And especially with flipper games of the time so we're talking 1950s to 1980s um in the US and uh it's it's just incredible the design that went into these um so um so that yeah
1: oh, oh no go, go ahead. sorry i didn't mean to...
0: uh really i was just going to say that's uh you know a basic introduction um they There's a whole world of unique mechanisms and really interesting uh, design that takes place in in bingo pinball machines. And you can see the arms race between player and manufacturer as far as anti-cheat, which is then reflected in amusement pinball as well. So kind of these innovations trickle down.
1: Now you um your your love for EMs and bingo specifically has gone in a couple different ways from those, those those early memories that you have um just to highlight a couple you've got um an event that you put on or that you're part of you've got a a, a, a called bingo row or at least you, you you did um you've got a couple different podcasts that you cover for amusement only as one played a gaming content as as another and then you've actually built out some 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 bingo emulators slash, slash simulators and we'll I actually want to want to start with those. So how did you go from you know um fixing you know fixing your 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 friends machine or your parents' friend machine I should say um and then uh getting your own at a ball and then um working on your own machines to actually starting to to create your own pinball experiences both uh media wise and and implementation wise
0: yeah so as I was working on um my wife's friends uh, or co-workers game. Um, sorry sorry you know, about that, uh, I
1: said, I said your,
0: your parents, my apologies. No, all good. Uh, so uh, his game, I was just fascinated by how it handled all the computation. So uh, Bingo Pinball Machine, particularly the one that I was looking at, which was a magic screen game, has a couple different methods for randomizing. And they're all mechanical. Um, so the mechanical randomization happens through drag arms uh, cams and various motorized elements. And it's just ingenious. Um, But I started thinking about how many actual positions and ways that this randomizer can actually impact the game and realized, you know, I bet I could replace all of this fairly easily with, you know, a, a little bit of computer code Uh, It turned out to be a lot of computer code, (laughs) but um, that's because I wildly underestimated the task. So um, after that, you know, I started thinking about it a little more, um, looked into the different board sets that were available, and uh, started thinking about making my own um, as well. But far and away, um, the thing that I came to was, you know, there's this board set, the P3 Rock. And it includes individual switchboards, uh, power driver board for driving, coils, uh, relays, motors, whatever you want. And then there's the P3 Rock itself, which is the brains or the director for all these different boards. One thing that I love in um, board sets, solid state board sets is separation of function. Yep. I think that is crucial um, for ease of repair. Um, but it also makes the the logic portion a lot easier to understand. So if you're working on, say, a Williams System 11 board set where everything has grown seemingly organically, um, (laughs) you you have a real mix of, like, drivers uh, and then switch handling, and, you know, everything is kind of intermingled in a way that makes it a little difficult to go in and affect a repair uh, unless you're familiar with the operation of the system as a whole. Right. Uh, So that was kind of a crucial element, and that was something I wanted, I knew that I wanted. Um, The other thing is the actual uh, way that devices connect. So there were a couple different options, and the p 3 Rock offered the best connectivity options, in my opinion. and methods co- of control. Co- con-
1: connectivity sure. to um, external devices or connectivity to internet or both?
0: Connectivity to external devices. Okay. So switches, coils, et cetera.
1: And, and, and Nick, just for frame of reference, um, how long ago is this that you got exposed to the P3 rocks?
0: 2014, I think, uh, okay. is when, yeah, I started looking at that more seriously. And it, at, at the time I was going out, I was doing repair for different people <laughs> in uh, a fairly wide area. Um, and that continued for about 10 years after my initial exposure to bingos. Okay. Um,
1: and, and, and just for, 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 frame of reference, um, you're, you're looking to the P3 rock and board sets in general to mm-hmm. replace the mechanical logic within the bingo machines that you're looking at.
0: Yeah. Just to see if it's possible. Okay. Really. So at it's, first. It's, it's,
1: it's an experiment.
0: Just an experiment. So just a thought. Um, I have a deep and abiding love for bingo pinballs. Oh. And one of the th- things that I wanted to do was to present them to a new audience. Um, there are some people who will walk right on by a bingo pinball machine, fully working at a show without really experiencing what they are or understanding what's happening. So, um, it- A friend of mine, Jeffrey Lawton, who has written books about bingos um, and has done repair for many, many, many years, Um, he brought some bingos to the York show every year. And I loved it because it was always a new experience, uh, always a challenge to try to beat those games. And, um, you know, not that I ever did, (laughs) but I sure tried. And um, so, it was, it was great. You know, I got exposure to these different mechanisms. So I had my friend Steve that I would go up there with, we'd play the different bingos. And I started to think, you know, how great would it be if uh, I brought a whole bunch of bingos and tried to get as many collectors as possible to bring bingos as well. And so a group of us kind of got together and we all started working on this bingo row idea. Um, And uh, we've, had years where we've had you know more than a dozen games in a row, uh, fully working, playable the entire show. And uh, that's no mean feat. I mean, it, it is uh, difficult to move, especially a number of yeah. bingos. They're very, very heavy. Um, so it, it requires a lot of effort, but uh, well worth it. So every year we've tried to keep that tradition going. Um, it's been obviously very challenging through uh, the pandemic. Um, trying to coordinate things. And especially there was, uh, I think the first year back for the the York show 2021, I was not able to attend. So um, that made things very challenging as well. Um, But, uh, but we're, we're back. We're still, you know, doing this thing. And uh, the first year that my custom game appeared was 2015.
1: And so tell us about your custom game. Let's let uh... this.
0: So, the, the first game that I made was the multi bingo. And so I started looking at uh, specifically the portioning, the randomization elements of uh, the six card bingos. So six card bingos have no moving elements on the back box. Um, it, they have a sort of simplified mechanism for the randomization. And so I thought this would be a fairly easy test of this idea would be implementing these six card bingos um and seeing if if it works um so i started with uh a few different games and there are a couple single card bingos that i included in their very early ones um like uh 1951's broadway which was uh a prototype only it only made it to production sample as far as we know. Um, it, it was never on really any f- official uh, production records from Bally. And some of the ones that have been found are, are just very lightly modified from Bright Lights, which was the first bingo that Bally produced. But um, at any rate, so I started working on this, realized that the portioning was in fact possible, and the portioning was fairly consistent. So within, say, the 1970s, all the six cards that Bally produced. Um, and there were about, uh, I think, 15 uh, total games across uh, two or three different manufacturers um, that were six cards or six card based. Uh, so I was able to implement all of those for that 2015 year. Um, Now, the way that I did it is a little different than uh, some other makers uh, in that I didn't want to destroy any working games in order to get the parts. Um, My game interfaces or interfaces with the computer logic that I've written uh, and electromechanical elements so i'm actually driving the the motors to lift the ball the motor to open and and close the shutter uh to hold the balls in place um other elements like that are are handled through that computer control and the p3 rock um and uh i had to (laughs) work with different collectors who had amassed you know uh large chunks of parts to try to acquire the pieces that I needed to, to put this cabinet together. And once I started working on it and planning on it in depth, I realized, you know, Oh, I need a cabinet of this depth in order to include all of the mechanical elements for every game that's ever existed. Um, I need to build a supplemental drawer to hold additional controls Um, on bingo pinballs. uh, They are typically have a bunch of user controls on the footrail itself. So where you put in money for the game, there are buttons all over the place, and then there's buttons on the front of the cabinet as well. So I needed a game that had a particular set of buttons on the front or one that had similar dimensions so that I could add extra buttons. And then I needed uh, a lock bar receiver of a particular type so that, I had to make as few modifications as possible. But the biggest caveat was all these parts needed to come from uh, stashes of, of games that had previously been destroyed for whatever reason. Um, so I started acquiring all these parts, put together uh, the, the prototype version and took it to Bingo Row in 2015 for the first time.
1: So so Nick, I assume that you went to where La- the famous uh, picture of LaGuardia, Mayor LaGuardia, breaking a whole bunch of uh, Bingo pinball machines and just harvested parts there. Is that correct? Did I get that right?
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, jumped down into New York Harbor and, you know, pulled out stuff. So most of the uh, games that were smashed uh, by LaGuardia were actually precursors to bingos so they were games from the 40s and Mm. and so forth um so a little earlier but uh but yeah same concept and obviously bingos were smashed all over the place Um, so
1: i'm i'm trying to wrap my as this is fascinating i'm trying to wrap my head around the machine that you're building and i'm i'm getting i'm getting a a a semblance it's coming out of the fog i'm starting to get an understanding (laughs) um can you just take a quick like as you're going through the story um walk sure. through aspects of what makes it a multi-bingo. Like you said that you, har- you, you harvest parts from a lot of different machines. You were trying to get it to, to be a multi-bingo. What is a multi-bingo to you?
0: Yeah, I guess I, guess I could describe the actual game. Um, so uh, the back box uh, in bingo pinballs typically has a ton of mechanical components, motors, uh, cams, just all kinds of switches, relays, all kinds of stuff. I wanted to replace all of that with electronics. Now, when you do that, um, you're also removing part of the element that drives the static or dynamic display for the game. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to replace that with the monitor. So the back box contains the P3 rock board set, and it contains the monitor, uh, which displays the back glass information to the player. Um, The cabinet, the lower cabinet, contains the play field, uh, tilt mechanism, uh, Jones plugs, you know, all that kind of stuff, um, which is fed up into the head. Um, so the connectivity is still Jones plugs. The idea being that, um, you could take this and if one of the components inside turned out to be, you know, hen's teeth rare, it could then be switched back to a regular bingo pinball machine, um, to keep another game alive
1: and with the uh-huh. this, this this helps tremendously so with the with the back box on um, being a digital display and you having a, 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 a P th- uh uh the p3 rock uh, uh uh board in the back um are you then exchanging out the play fields from different yes. um yeah okay so it's a like like a p3 it's got an, an exchangeable play field all right now it's making yes. sense and then you have a, a bin of parts some permanently mounted, some temporarily mounted through the drawer you were talking about, where you can now change out the mechanical, electrical, and and and, and game control. Okay, now now I'm getting it. That's awesome.
0: Yes. So so there's 11 different play fields, and they each uh, open up a range of different games. And there's four different manufacturers, Williams, Bally, uh, Keeney, and United, um, that are incorporated in the multi-bingo. So each year it grew in capability. Um, I hired artist Ryan Clayter to draw a um, custom frame for the, uh, for the back glass. So uh, it, it's a uh, illustration which is, is themed appropriately for bingos and it fits with each game. So there's not a, you know, a big contrast between um, the different, different games that you select. So I had to write a menuing system Everything's driven through Pi Proc Game. Um, and then Pi Game is actually doing all the graphics and audio work. Um, there are speakers mounted inside and I recorded audio from each game's unique motors. Um, so where something is not directly coil driven, um, like for example, I have a replay register which is mounted inside the head. Now that's not visible to the player, but it is driving those coils in the same way that they would be in a regular bingo pinball machine.
1: Um, Nick, uh, for the listener, uh, can you tell what PyRock
0: and PyGame are? Yeah. um, So game is a framework that's written in Python, and it sits uh, on top of the C libraries, which interface with um, the P3Rock. And they also interface with the P-Rock, which is the Previous version of the board set, which is a replacement for uh, Stern and Williams MPUs, um, but the P3 Rock is a lot more um, uh, uh, has a lot more separation of function because it, yeah. it doesn't it's not acting as a direct replacement for those uh, other board sets. Yeah, no, th- thank uh, you.
1: For, uh, thank you for that. And you—you yeah. um, you were mentioning that you recorded um, some of the some of the mechs and the way that they operate. Um, I happen to also be, uh, in addition to mechanical pinball, I happen to love virtual pinball. And one of the things that I absolutely love to show people on EM tables specifically is the specific is the recording of the sound that when you hold the flipper. Um, I don't know if you've yeah, you've pro- you've probably seen it um or and heard it. They actually recorded the buzzer sound of the solenoid. Activating and keeping held while um, and it's it's like my absolute favorite thing to show people about the detail <laughs> of what goes into virtual pin. So I I very much respect and appreciate the fact that you took the time to to record the the the, the mechanics. Well, how how did you go about that? Um, did you sell like set, set up a whole audio setup? Did you pull the the mechanic mechanisms out of the machine to record them? Did you take them to a sound studio?
0: So that that's very. Uh, tricky to answer because it it depends on the game. So in some instances, I didn't own copies, so I would have to travel and then record. Um, And in some instances, the mechanism can be heard very clearly inside the back box, but it's very difficult to isolate it from the other elements that are running at the same time. Uh, So the trick is um, really finding the, the best spot to record from in the game and then making sure that the environment is conducive to that recording. And you can only do so much, you know, even in a recording studio, uh, just depending, getting the game into it would be a challenge, assembled, set up. So um, it's just a matter of, you know, pretty much playing it where it lied and uh, making sure that the recording was as good as possible. I was in a number of bands for many years, and we did our own recordings. And so, um, you know, I have a little bit of experience with some of that uh not uh i'm not great at it but but there is something there so um Um,
1: back at the turn of the century um i was working with brian schmidt um a famed audio lore from uh from uh, uh data east as well as uh bally williams and um we both worked on the audio stack for the original Xbox. And so the reason I asked cool. you the question I asked is because we we would go on location at times to record cars for Forza and for Project Author Racing. And the you know the way that we had to wire up the cars to to um you know, whether they were uh you know um in somebody's garage or in you know uh, on, you know, street racing, et cetera. So I actually worked on the low level stack with Brian, but there were times where we went out on recordings as well. So as, as you said, you were recording the mech So I was like, wait a second, I gotta, I gotta dig into this.
0: <laughs> well, that's really cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you, you probably achieved a level of fidelity that just wasn't, wasn't possible for me with the equipment that I had, but, uh, but I made the attempt, and uh, and and you can hear the different mechs and and how they interact. So when you when you press the button to move the magic squares, which rotate uh, a circle of four numbers around, um, it's actually the magic squares motor that you're hearing and uh, the components themselves. So, so I've I've um, I've
1: seen um, screenshots, and on your website you've got a good a good walkthrough, um, and I've also seen some video online. Um, I didn't realize the level of depth based on like on, on what was in the Multi Bingo until I had this conversation with you. So I'm you know I I did my homework on this one. So I'm super super glad that you you walked through that. So 2015 was the first year you showed up at the show with it. Yes. and then over the next number of years the the capabilities grew. Um, mm-hmm. And so are you at this point still working on the Multi Bingo, or do you feel that that project is kind of kind of at a good place? And then then we talk about the
0: rest of your projects. Uh, last year, I acquired some of the most difficult to acquire parts um, that I've been on the lookout for since 2015. Um, but as far as code and, and everything is concerned, that's been done since about uh, 2016, 2017, um, maybe 2018, depending. But um, yeah, it's it's been really interesting. It's traveled across the country. I've been to TPF with it. Um and uh I've also been, you know, to a couple different uh the couple different Pennsylvania shows, the White Rose Game Room show, of course, the York show. It goes there every year and then uh the Allentown show as well.
1: So um yeah, so so I, nah, I spaced it, so that ne- never mind. Um so let's let's now uh s- start moving away from the multi-bingo. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, you started to foray into other maker projects. Why don't, why don't we start talking about, about those?
0: Sure. So um, I have collaborated with uh, Ryan Clater on an, a number of projects. And one of the things that we started talking about <laughs> was, is it possible to create a new EM arcade game? Um, and I said, of course, as long as parts are available, you know, anything is possible. Uh, and the question was, you know, can you make it a really deep rule set? Can we actually, you know, make a game that would be fun and challenging and has the depth that you would, uh, kind of require in, in a home environment and, and for other people to play. And I said, of course, it's all a matter of time. (laughs) So, um, I sat down and I drew up a schematic based on a rule set that we collaborated on and said, oh yeah, this will definitely work. Um, so he started working on an art package for it. And the game is called Robo Frenzy and it's a stand-up electromechanical arcade game. Um, this is not complete as of today. Uh, Ryan has had many, many other projects uh, that are, uh, have, have come to the fore uh, over Robo frenzy for him but uh, the electrically uh, the first prototype is all wired up and it works um, but there's some uh, artwork that needs to be done in order to machine like hand controls uh, for the player so so
1: so Nick um, the the interesting thing about this is you went to actually go create a a new EM machine and you started at the place where anybody who's diagnosing, a, you know, is actually where you started many, you know, many, many moons ago, if you will, with your, with your, with, 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 with your family friend, um, on, uh, on, you know, the schematic. And so mm-hmm. why did you, so two questions there. First, why did you start with the schematic? And the second is, um, how did you convert the game rules that you and he discussed into the schematic?
0: So a schematic is always where I start. When I'm designing a game, it's um, there. Well, when I'm designing a rule set for a game, I, I guess. Mm, when I'm designing a rule set for an electromechanical <laughs> game, that's where I start. Uh, so I had spent uh, one thing about the multi bingo, just to diverge again, yeah, yeah. is that I went through every manual and schematic uh, wire for wire uh, and tried to accurately recreate absolutely everything. So, there's 142 different machines. That's a lot of reading schematics. Yeah. And I found in some instances there was like one switch stack that was slightly different. Um, and the cam was shaped just a little bit differently from the last game. So, um, you know, that's the level of detail that we're talking about. So, I'm familiar with, you know, all the rotational mechs and making sure that steppers and so forth um, do the right thing at each position. Uh, And that's a lot more challenging uh, than you might think. Oh, yeah. Because uh, a stepper can control lights, it can control coils, and it can control access to switches. So um, you have all these different fingers which are operating at different voltages. um, And as they rotate, it changes the and, machine's capability, and
1: so. and 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 Nick, just to put a, a fine point on it, then in a lot of you know anybody who hasn't worked with analog systems wouldn't know necessarily, even if they've worked with 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 digital ones, that in the case of only like a cam. As it's rotating, it's got a different shape, which gives it a different curve, which gives it a different performance property. And so you've got the element of time in these analog systems that you also have to model, which is not not a trivial thing for any individual cam, yet alone a whole stack of them working together.
0: Yeah. And especially when you're talking about a computer, which of course can perform these calculations faster than instantaneously, you know, right. When there's the requirement that, you know, the rotation is, it takes, you know, 10 seconds or something, let's just say, you know, then you've got to subdivide things in such a way that it makes sense. Um, So in an EM, a pure EM environment, um, you're just taking those physical properties and then moving them to, in my case, a schematic to start. So I wanted to make sure, okay, if I have power going to this particular coil, what happens? You know, what, what do I actually want to occur? And what should be the gates that prevent that from happening? So similar to logic design in, in board sets, you have digital gates, which perform your different logic functions and or NOR, et cetera. Um, you have the same setup with switches and relays and steppers. So it's just a matter of laying them out in a way that makes logical sense. And once you have that set, then wiring it becomes trivial or more trivial, I guess I should say. <laughs> so um, that was the approach that I took. And uh, it it worked. There were a couple of quirks, things that I didn't anticipate. There's a, a timing-based function um, where uh, the, the gameplay, you're going down to the bottom of a mine. You're picking up a gear and you're trying to bring it back to the surface to build a robot. After you uh, bring up six gears, the robot is created, it's carted away, and then you can build a new one. Uh, So two players are playing simultaneously, competitively, uh, and uh, the antagonist of the game is this giant robotic octopus, which is mounted kind of in the top center, and the game is timed. So as the robotic octopus reaches out its tentacles, it can touch you at any time, and then you're forced to drop whatever gear that you're holding, uh, if you're holding one, and it will also prevent you from picking one up for a period of time. That period of time is randomized, and it's randomized using uh, the same principle that Bally's delay relays use. (laughs) So in the 1970s, they used a 455 blinker bulb, uh, which is a, a bimetallic Uh, element. So as power is applied to the bulb, it will light up and then it will blink off when the bimetallic element heats up. Then as it cools, it reattaches to the circuit and lights up again. But in a relay context, it holds the power until that element heats up and then it drops out of the circuit. So um, that uh, was a good way to, to introduce randomization to that mechanical Timing.
1: So, Nick, um, a couple of minutes ago, I spaced on what I wanted to ask you, and you said something, and I remembered what it was uh, as 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 you were talking. And so, I want to go back to when you were building out Bingo Row. You mentioned that there were some rare parts that you found, um, and uh, and it took you a while to source them. And I wanted to ask you, like, you 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 like, what were they? What was so rare? What 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 were the pieces you were looking for? So,
0: there are different. There are 11 different play fields that can be swapped into the multi-bingo, and each of them has some unique aspect that um, made it be essential to the operation of one or more games. Um, I was able to find, in some instances, new old stock play fields, but not the mechanisms which attach to them. Um, and in other instances, I was able to find junked play fields that had been parted previously, but not you know, the actual mechanical piece that I needed. So it it was a lot of trying to piece together, you know, this is the motor that needs to sit here on this particular play field, that kind of thing. The very last piece, and this involves one of the heroes of the multi-bingo, he provided a lot of the parts for the initial build. Um, They were very specific and weird things. Uh, (laughs) And his name is Dennis Dodal, and he... Uh, has just been a fabulous help to to me in these different endeavors that that I've been working in, Bingo Row, everything. So he uh, actually found a Hi-Fi, which was the last uh, game that had unique parts that I needed, um, and held on to the parts for me for a year until I was able to make a road trip out there and, and pick them up. Um so just incredible thanks to to Dennis Dodel for for all of his help with with that. Um otherwise I'd still be looking for those hi-fi parts. So hi-fi is unique in that you press a flipper button that's mounted on the side of the cabinet and the entire play field shoves back and forth. <laughs> um, so uh, players have have likened it to uh, uh, an auto tilt. <laughs> Because, you know, it's actually nudging the game for you. Right. Uh, the secret to that mechanism is that while you are pressing that button and the playfield's moving, it disables the tilt. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's not a way to actually physically tilt the machine. So you can get really violent with it just during that moment. Um, pretty pretty interesting stuff. But at any rate, so that's the last piece. But I have to drill holes in the cab. And it requires new mounts for the playfields. Uh, they're... Metal. It's like this metal cage instead yeah. of the wooden supports, which are normally part of the cabinet. And I would like to retain those wooden supports, so I'm trying to um, fit both in there if that's possible. But it's going to be tricky. Got it. So.
1: All, all right. Well, we took that deviation, so let's go back to Robo Frenzy.
0: <laughs> sure. So, um, so yeah, the rule set: uh, as the octopus touches you, you drop the gear. Um, and that is controlled through essentially a bally delay relay that i i built up um and uh the hardest part in figuring out the design of that were those steppers so there's different steppers which control different functions within the game player control so it's you know directing the game whether or not it's player one or two or whether you have paid for two players to play, um, those kind of things. Uh, and hey Nick, for,
1: for the listener who may not be familiar with yes. EMs, um, can you yes. just say what a stepper is?
0: <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Uh, so a stepper is, is a mechanical unit that is, it moves in a circular motion. Steppers are uh, they're also called step switches uh, and they step through a ratcheting action, which happens Uh, with a uh, solenoid that's mounted on the back of the unit. So solenoids can be mounted in multiple positions on different units, and they can do things like reset the stepper in one press of the solenoid, or they can step it up a piece at a time, step it down a piece at a time. Uh, And solenoids can be continuous. They can move 360 uh, degrees, or they can only move a certain number of positions. So for RoboFrenzy, I have a mixture, I have some which are 360 degrees. And then I have some which are um, just a a set number of steps. Uh, The timer unit is actually from uh, a bingo and the early bingos had 40 step timers. So after 40 steps of this timer unit, the game times out. It acts like it's tilted. And in fact, it actually has thrown the tilt relay in uh, the bingo in in the context of robo frenzy, it just trips a game over relay. Um, so it's still waiting to take coins still presents your previous score everything's good. it just shuts the game down um, So uh, yeah, that's robo frenzy it's it's uh, it's waiting on uh, on some artwork and, 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 and on that artwork um did it did it have any
1: digital aspects to it a backglass or anything like that or it was com- okay so it was completely EM it's, from from the ground up.
0: It's, it's a, uh, a glass, back glass with backlit elements. So um, if you're familiar with uh, games from the 40s and 50s, there's little hidden pictures in the back glass. And as each light bulb lights uh, in sequence, there's new images are revealed. So Ryan and I both love that style of artwork. And it's something which hasn't been seen in many, many years. So um, you know we're kind of excited to, to kind of bring that out for the public to play. Yeah. Um,
1: when uh, it has, has the machine already made a debut or it's going to make a debut?
0: Once the artwork is finished, okay. that one I would like to present as a cohesive package.
1: Um, so, so so you've gone from um, playing to fixing to fixing others, uh, to starting to build some community with Bingo Row. Um, you've now you know challenged yourself with building your own EM. Uh, And you also have the the multi-bingo, so you mix kind of the the digital and physical. Where do you take it from here?
0: (laughs) So so one of the things, as I was doing research for the multi-bingo, I kept coming back to multimorphic. And multimorphic, uh, at the time, was advertising this machine that they wanted to produce called the P3. And it was fascinating. It ticked all the boxes that I wanted. Uh, So... Uh, different games, which are created by different developers, not necessarily all by one company. They allowed for third-party development, um, modular architecture, modular board set. Uh, in fact, it was the same board set that I used for the multi Bingo. Um, so my familiarity with that, uh, and my passion for using the P3 Rock and the way that it was designed, um, really influenced, uh, You know my my thought there uh, you know obviously this company and the people who are making this have their thoughts together uh, as far as how a modular system should be constructed they absolutely understand the electronic side of it um so the physical side you know i can see that marriage um and and how it'll work uh so that fascinated me but i had to save up some cash so, never bought a new game before. This would be the first and probably only. Um, so, I wanted to make sure you know this was something that I wanted to do. And so, I started socking away the cash from repair jobs, and I would go, you know, uh, in a three or four-state area repairing different games um, oh. uh, every night and weekend. You know, all the time I was out repairing games. Um, em solid states 1930s to the present day uh didn't matter what uh but uh you know i just love fixing games and helping people get their games fixed and so, so I actually, also
1: let, yeah, let yeah. me deviate there just for a sec so you and i both happen to be p3 owners um yes. so you I, i'm i'm blowing your story because you do end up getting a p3 and <laughs> i just want to want to dovetail what you said um I've been learning on how to do repairs and diagnostics on the P3. It, there is a learning curve to it. And I, you know, I wanted to publicly say thank you for for all the help you've given me in, in, in getting over that hump. And although I've, you know, diagnosed and fixed pinball machines for years, it is a little bit different on the P3. And so some of the places you start. And so I will be the first Testament on, on, on this podcast to say like, it's not just you fixing the machine, but you helping others. It's it, it like, I've, I've seen you on the discord. It's it's, it it really is amazing how helpful you are. So, anyways, with that, back back to multi races.
0: Well, well, thanks very much. I mean, I I really love making sure that people can enjoy their game, whatever it is It, you know. Um, and if if somebody's having a difficult time, if I can break something down in a, a way that maybe they're able to digest a little differently than you know the official tech documentation, which is fantastic, um, but you know, everybody absorbs information differently. And that's, uh, I've had to break things down for very non-technical people on service calls before. Why does this widget not work? Um, You know, I want to put in money and I want to play my game and, okay, (laughs) you know, all these pieces have to work together to make that happen. So um, anyway, uh, it, it, it's a passion of mine to, to, to try to help people if I can. So, so thank you for that. Um, and yeah, so as I'm working on that, I'm simultaneously you know, improving the multi bingo. I'm working with others to try to you know, maintain bingo row, get new games, find new stuff uh, that we can present to the public. Um, and also uh, a seed is planted to start working on a new game. Uh, a new custom game called multi-races. So uh, from 1936 to 1952, uh, four different manufacturers in the United States made horse racing games. And they're very specific horse racing games. You have one ball and you have to land in a particular numbered pocket on the play field. The play field layout itself, the, the broad strokes are all the same for every game um different challenge because in the bingos there's a wealth of documentation uh every game has a manual every game has a schematic and you can actually trace the wires from each rivet on these big rotational disks back to a relay or mm-hmm. uh stepper you know some other component in the machine in the one ball horse race games That is not the case. Usually you get a black and white uh, engineering photo, which was snapped and then put into the manual with little labels written and with an arrow (laughs) pointing to a a switch stack or something. So you get a little bit of documentation and then you have a schematic, which is written in a different style. So every manufacturer had their own style of writing schematics. That is true across all eras. But in the 1940s, things (laughs) were particularly uh, different. Um, the There might be a physical representation of an individual component that's drawn into the schematic. Um, so, you know, you might get this cute little drawing of a leaf switch <laughs> in a fairly simple circuit uh, instead of the traditional kind of uh, electrical notation that you might be used to in other schematics. So um, it's it's just a, a, a different mindset. And that uh, was a fun challenge because, you know, figuring out how everything uh, works together in these fairly sophisticated, especially for the time, machines Mm -hmm. uh, was a big challenge. It's not always clear how things are mounted unless you have a copy of the game that you can look into. And the one ball machines in particular are very unloved. Um, historically. So a lot of them have been smashed. They're big, they're heavy. Um, They have floor length cabinets, most of them. So they're incredibly difficult to move. Uh, And it's, it's just a challenge getting the information. So with a very small community of enthusiasts, I was able to procure enough information to uh, make sound judgment calls. And the uh, designer who was brought on board late in the one ball era was the designer of most of the bingos that Bally produced um maybe all of them it's a little unclear who, who, uh, who, who was it don hooker okay and he was an engineering genius uh, just incredible and his game design philosophy was also exceptional so in the early one ball games you would put in a nickel and you would get some advantage on the board, right? Like, okay, you're shooting for number seven and you can get a maximum of 20 nickels back if you land in that number seven in a particular spot on the play field. Great, that's easy. You put in the next nickel and your max might be eight. So you actually reduce your ability after putting in more money. So Don Hooker's big innovation was guaranteed advancement. So if you gain an advantage in the game, you don't lose it. Um, and that uh, influences so much design throughout the amusement industry. Um, it's, it's really exceptional, that way of thinking um, and, at the and, time.
1: Yeah, and, and, and at the time, it also means that there's a lot more mechanical states that needs to be put into yes. place in order to be able to handle that. Um, you know, now, now in code, it's a couple lines of code and you can accomplish that. But back then, I mean, that's more camshafts, that's more steppers. Like that's, it's a whole mechanical process to be able to make that guarantee.
0: It is, but that, uh, line of thinking paid off very well and you know, Valley made just amazing truckloads of money making these games because, uh, they were so popular with the players. Um, and there was an incentive for the player to continue putting money in. Right. So that's the big difference is in the one balls, you know, it's a real risk. You might uh, drop in a nickel and then, you know, you're already at the max odds. So, you know, play it where it lies. But um, later on, you know, if there's an incentive to keep feeding the machine, uh, the operator's happy, the player is happy. Uh, they might not be happy at the time, but if they win, they sure are happy um, because they've produced that result. Um, so it's, it's that, uh, way that the player thinks about the actions that they take, which is also crucial. Uh, and Don Hooker was just especially tuned into how that worked it, and had it, the engineering chops to back that up.
1: It it's interesting that the, you know, it sounds like it's a super, I, I you know, when you say it, it's like one ball, one location, one horse, you're moving, um, but it's really like the strategy of how many coins do you put in and when do you stop putting the coins in, you know, adds to that, to that game element. Um, now I, I, I jumped us around a couple of times and I'm, I, you know, I, and I may have, I may have gotten the listener confused. How does the multi, uh, the, the, the multi races relate to your desire to purchase a P3? <laughs> so,
0: uh, this was, uh, a small project that I wanted to complete, uh, While I was continuing to save up money for the P3, Um, so they kind of happened sort of simultaneously. Um, You know, I've been working for many years, you know, just socking away a little bit at a time. And um, I started building this machine. And I thought it would be a good addition to Bingo Row and expose people to a different style of game. And again, a different group of people to a different style of game. Um, The solid state, Marriage that the multi bingo has really drew in a different crowd of people to play. There were people who were interested in checking out the game and therefore the other bingos in Bingo a Row just because, hey, this has an LCD back box. You know, that's weird. Um, let's see what this is about. And so I was able to teach them how to play and then they got hooked. Um, same with the one ball. So I wanted to kind of incorporate that same ethos and and, and spirit uh, by uh, letting people try these games uh, which are very hard to find in the wild um, it takes a specific collector really to have a one ball in their collection um, so uh, but because of the challenge of, of integrating uh, the the wiring you know figuring out how the portioning worked for example, in those older games um, and figuring out the genesis of uh, the reflex unit. So uh, player awards are gated based on how much you're winning or losing in the game. Same is true all the way through all the bingos. Um, But this is a really unique and special mechanism, um, which is incorporated in the 1980s in ball machines with auto portioning so your match is auto portioned um you know how frequently you achieve a replay and it's really it comes from that idea of the reflex unit so that's awesome the amount of money you put in how well you play uh determines how you're rewarded within the game Um, and it's so clever it's it's like a car differential that is rotating at, at different speeds so um Pretty, pretty neat but anyway I digress and no I uh, I, I
1: actually actually Nick um I, I wouldn't take it as a digression because what's interesting is your passion for you know the uh, you know going under the play field and understanding really how these machines work and all the intricacies and details and then your desire to both replicate them mechanically or replicate them um conceptually and then also in in digital form has caused you to preserve the history of these machines, number one, expose them and expand them to generations of people who, like you said, would have just passed over them. And kind of most importantly, building a community. Like you talk about the, you know, the guy who held it for one year for you to road trip. You're bringing these things out to, um, you know, to 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 to, to the shows, creating bingo row. Like you're you're actually. You know, from that love of the technical aspect of what's under the play field, you've built this whole community around it, which is, I don't think it's a deviation at all. Like, that's actually what I think makes the podcast interest.
0: It's, it, it's, it's certainly very interesting to me, um, but I, I can get a little technical, a little wordy. So uh, thank you for your kind words. So um, if, 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 if it's okay, um. The yes.
1: uh, let let's let's finish about the multi bingo and then cross the story to the to the P three yes. and what happens there. Right? I think that's where you were going. So,
0: so the very last part of multi races, um, I hired uh, the artist Joel de Guzman to uh, illustrate uh, a similar surround that like Ryan Clater did for the multi bingo, and he did a phenomenal job. It is beautiful, um, and again, it it, it kind of disappears into the background while you're playing these different games, which is. Exactly the intended effect. Um, the the big difference between the multi-bingo and multi-races is that I didn't have as much variation in the playfields. So I figured out a way that I could retain the same playfield for all the games uh, in multi-races, no swapping, which is great because the playfields are very big. They're very heavy compared to bingo pinball playfields. And they have a lot of components. Um, So it doesn't seem like it when you look at them, but uh, they're actually much bigger than a standard pinball play field. Um, So uh, it's kind of like a wide body. Um, (laughs) So uh, in the back box, I retained the control unit, which is the big main motor. Mm -hmm. And I actually drive that through the P3 rock as well as a replay register, just like the multi bingo. But I also have a payout mechanism that's built into the door, the front door. And that's driven as well through the P3 Rock. So uh, the actual hardware that drives an entire game is still hooked up and it's providing the accurate sounds. I didn't have to model anything. I didn't have to uh, put in speakers of any kind. It's actually driving the relays, the steppers, everything um, as it would accurately on any given game. So that was a fun challenge, too, figuring out how long do I leave the control unit spinning? You know, how many clicks of uh, this particular stepper need to happen? What's the challenge when it bottoms out? You know, once it maxes out that stepper, you're no longer going to get the same clunk sound. So do I need a continuous stepper? How do I handle the reset sound? You know, all these things were... uh, Floating around in in my brain as I built the thing, but got it all and, put together, and it's been traveling to shows for a few years now.
1: And and now you have a second machine that's a bridging of modern digital technology and you know uh, and, and 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 historical analog technology, um, and you know that along with the with the multi bingo, and then on top of the Robo Frenzy as an as an EM machine. So now, what what happens from here? <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. At, at that point, you know, I had taken delivery of my P3 just about. So um, there was, I, my P3 came in 2019, I think. Um, and at the time, uh, Ryan Clater and I had put out a new project, coin Carnival. And uh, this is an, an illustrated uh, zine, for lack of a better term, 64 pages um interviews, stories, game reviews, all that kind of stuff. Just again, um presenting that information to new audiences and it uh, does really And
1: by seeing you mean a, a physical publication.
0: Yes, physical yeah. publication. So it's intended to be one of 4 and we had a huge setback on number 2 and we're still working on that. Um but uh at any rate, number 1 is out and available now. Uh, so, uh P3 arrives and I'm blown away. This is amazing. Um, It is everything that I hoped for. Um, There was a lot to uh, learn about maintenance uh, that was a little different that you mentioned. So things like uh, I had a pop bumper switch that needed adjusting on Lexi Lightspeed, which was the module that I received with the P3. Um, so after playing a little while, I said, you know, that bumper could be a little more responsive. So I lift the entire playfield frame up uh, into a vertical position, as you would on, you know, pretty much any other game that you're working on. That was really dumb. That that was the hardest way to do that <laughs> particular task. Um, so the easy way, and the cool thing about the P3, as far as maintenance is concerned, is that you almost never have to do that. Um, you can. Just pull it out a little ways and then pull the entire back third out, flip it over and then tweak your little switch and put it back in. And the back
1: third pulls out just, you know, it's, it's usually less than 20 pounds. It's a vertical lift and you can do it like, you know, you don't have to have a ton of muscle to be able to, to pick it up and put it down. Um, it, it really, it really is makes, makes working on, on the machine very, very different as you're saying.
0: So, so much easier in a lot of different ways. So um, flippers and slings, you just pull out, it's one connector, slide the whole thing out. I mean, it's it's great. It is a joy to work on different aspects of it. Some things are, are different just by their nature. So you have um, a grid of optos, which line the bottom two thirds and, and cover a monitor um, that is embedded underneath the play field. Uh, those uh, present their own, um, you know, kind of thought challenge because everything has to float above that grid or else the grid will be detecting things that it shouldn't, right? Um, so you know, that kind of thought process, figuring out how um, a multiple game machine should allow diagnostics and should allow management of the different applications and. Just the incredible amount of thought that Multimorphic has put into this uh, concept and, and this, this uh, the game, the, the base system, everything uh, just blew me away. Um,
1: and, and, and Nick, on that, um, you were talking about the optos that line the monitor. So can you mm-hmm. quickly tell the listener who might not be familiar with the P3, the purpose of those optos and the yes. monitor that you're talking about? What's the purpose of that?
0: So, there's a, a monitor um, that is, uh, gosh, I can't remember the sizing of it, but it's, it's essentially play field width yeah. um, that's mounted underneath on a frame. The, and the, there's the, a.
1: The, the lower two thirds of the play
0: field, basically. Lower two thirds of the play field. And it's covered with a polycarbonate cover that the um, pinballs roll on. Uh, The purpose of the opto grid and the purpose of the monitor are interrelated. So items which appear on the monitor can interact with the ball as it rolls. Uh, So the opto is sensing where the ball is, and then it translates that to the software that's running the game application. And it can tell the game, hey, the ball is at this coordinate. Um, Do a thing with, you know, some object that is being presented on the monitor. So In effect, you can have inserts located anywhere on the monitor, or you can have interactive objects that can be destroyed by the ball or uh, impact uh, the ball in different ways, um, providing little trap areas that uh, can award different bonuses. Those kind of things are all possible with that grid. Um, And it really opens up a lot of design possibilities
1: so, so, um, so, Nick, for, for, for those who are counting, okay, mm-hmm. um, the P3 offers a blend of digital and physical gameplay, okay? Mm-hmm. It has interchangeable play fields, um, and the both the hardware and the electronics are designed by separation of purpose and separation of function. All the yep. things that you've talked about in yeah. your lead-up through the last <laughs> number of years And so now you've basically gotten the perfect machine for you.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I loved it. And so I started looking into developing games for it, of course. Um, So Lexi is super fun and I love playing it, but there's always something else that I feel like I could be doing. You know, there's there's some project that I need to be working on. So um, my first project for the P3 was actually a homebrew game just to see if I could do it. And I wanted to uh, marry the idea of a point-and-click adventure game that was developed for the PC uh, with pinball. So I wanted the ball interactions that happen within the game to uh, emulate pointing and clicking.
1: Now, now, but, now Nick, Nick before, yes. before you go further, um, yep. uh, so you wanted to make a game for a pinball machine you own. And how are you like? Can you spend just a couple seconds on how you're able to do that?
0: Yes. So, Multimorphic, one of the very beautiful and attractive things about the P3 is that they have a publicly available software development kit. And the software development kit is built on top of Unity, which is a freely available 3D engine. Uh, it, It handles 3D and 2D, it handles very complex audio tasks. Uh, it has a physics engine baked in. Um, essentially, it is uh, a all-in-one kind of development suite that you can utilize uh, in lots of different ways. And Multimorphic has built uh, these software capabilities on top of it to allow it to interact with the pinball machine with great separation of function again. So you have uh, graphical elements which happen kind of on the Unity layer, and then you have... Ah, uh, coil driving and switch handling and all that kind of stuff. Uh, mode timers, all those things are kind of handled on uh, a, a different layer. Um, so you can keep that separation and it's really helpful. Um, so yeah, that that's the the basis of of all of the p three development. Um, and it is so great to to sit down. They provide a fully featured, sample game and it's it's simple but it's a three ball game it has a target that moves on screen when you hit it um it provides samples of how you might do lane change and side target interaction all these kind of things um so it's it's really quite clever and really fits in with how clever the entire rest of the machine is and the way that it handles things like diagnostics and um, system management and all that kind of thing um multiple uh, versions of the same application, which one's presented, how you interact with it, all that
1: stuff. So so with the SDK and your experience and having built numerous yeah. machine, numerous digital analogs uh, 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 projects for yourself, you then go down to make the click and point game that you were talking about or click and point style game.
0: Yeah, so um, the one that I picked is just a a personal favorite of mine, always loved this game, this series, and it was Quest for Glory. Um, So this was made by Sierra, and uh, I was particularly attempting to emulate uh, the style of the 1990s Mm -hmm. um, VGA version. Um, So in the game, the way that I adapted it for pinball, you have stats, uh, which interact uh, with the elements on in the game. So if you're trying to climb a tree, for example, you might need tree climbing skill. And then each time you make the attempt, your tree climbing skill gets a little stronger. And then once you reach a certain threshold, you're able to climb the tree, Um, those kind of things. So even if you're making a shot, you're not necessarily accomplishing the task based on your stats. Um, I've minimized those elements because that's very frustrating as a pinball player. If you make your shot, you want to experience a thing happening. Um, And if it doesn't, it creates some frustration. So it's required a lot of um, kind of thought and retooling of how uh, the player interacts with the game. Um, In a point and click game, it's fairly deliberate. You're moving the mouse, you click a button, something happens, the game basically pauses while you're reading a description or it's read to you. Um, In the pinball, initially, Everything happened the instant that you did a thing. So uh, you attempt to climb a tree. The ball is screaming back at you. You're trying to control it so that you can see what happened and figure out your next move. That was too difficult. So I ended up building in the ability for each interaction to trap the ball um, while it played out for you and then return to you safely. Um, And uh, if there's a character that you're... Yeah. Now,
1: now, Nick, real, real quick. Um, when you say you built that in, you're building a software-based, uh, digital, uh, game for the P3. Did you build any mechanics for Quest for Glory as well?
0: It's it's utilizing the Lexi Lightspeed um, module. Got it. So, um, yeah, I I didn't build any mechanics for this. Uh, just utilized what was there and uh, but you, you know, can I, I, y-
1: you can program through the SDK the modules that have been delivered as well
0: yes any module that's been created for the p3 um, any third party can develop for uh, just another you know great strength of the p3 um, if you love Lexi but you know there's uh, something else you want to do with that layout you have the freedom to do that um, and uh, it's just so liberating to be able to do that it's so fun um so quest for glory uh is uh not a a path i would advise anybody to go down who's looking to start making commercial games and once i finished quest for glory i said uh you know i have really spent a lot in development costs on this game i hired artists and voice actors and you know really um went all out on this thing but there's no way to recoup money because i don't own the license um so i've petitioned uh activision who are the current rights holders and they've remained silent which is a good thing i suppose but uh it just means that you know there's no way that the public can really experience this game that i've made Um, which is a a shame. Um, it is far and away the most complex, uh, pinball game that I think has ever been created. There's something like 700 modes, 70 individual scenes. Um, there's three different character classes, each with their own abilities and items that they can interact with. And each screen has a variety of different interactions, talking, looking, um, picking things up, interacting using items that are in your inventory and so forth. So it's, uh, it's wild, it's really cool. And I wish I could share it with people, but I, I can't. So um, once I started finishing Quest for Glory, I started thinking about the next project. And, and one of the things, one of the really unique things about the P3 is that you are able to create uh, games and share them with the entire community of P3 owners as a commercial product. Now, this is something that I hadn't I've, I've not commercialized any other thing that I've ever created. Um, multi bingo and multi races are open source. Um, the idea being, you know, that other people can create them. But I wanted to take a step into that commercial world and kind of learn what was involved with that. Uh, Multimorphic helped me every step of the way uh, with questions uh, as I was developing Quest for Glory. But it was understood that was essentially a homebrew project, you know, um, that, couldn't be a commercial project by nature of my using somebody else's IP. So it was time for me to create my own IP. Um, I had now a bit of the chops, you know, having learned Unity enough to implement Quest for Glory, which uh, was a project that was bigger in scope than uh, I should have started with. (laughs) But once it was finished, I had a lot of confidence in my ability to create something uh, that would be playable all the way through, you know, have uh, a, a very large wealth of content and be enough to engage players. Um, so, when it came time to start working on a commercial product, I started thinking about um, different ways of creating games. So previously I was creating games either to appeal to new audiences or to appeal to myself, you know, just a fun intellectual challenge. Um, But now I wanted to create something with a little more mass market appeal. Um, So I started looking at the different play fields available and what I had. And at the time I had Lexi Lightspeed and I had Cosmic Kart Racing. Um, So Cosmic Kart Racing is a fascinating uh, layout. Um, It is fairly straightforward when you look at it um, until you start playing it. And then you realize just how fast and loopy this game is. And by loopy, I mean actual physical loops. So there are loops all over this thing. Um, the ramps themselves act as large loops. Um, so it's it's a very different style of game than something that's more stop and go. So Quest for Glory, very stop and go. Lexi Lightspeed has a bit of stop and go. Um, but Cosmic Kart Racing, to me, is like the embodiment of you know, all flow, all go. So um, I wanted to build a game that incorporated that ethos. And I wanted to make something that had appeal to a broader audience. Um, But I also want to include my own unique takes on uh, what is rewarding and fun in a pinball machine. And of course, that's all influenced by, of course, my years of playing games, my years (laughs) of repairing games, and especially bingo pinball. So um, just being able to kind of work uh, on reverse engineering those games and understanding the thought process behind the creation of the mechs and how the player interacts with them um, really unlocked something, I think, in my <laughs> head um, that helped me to, to understand game design in a different way than I had previously. Um, and thinking about video games and the way that they... Uh, appeal to players and interact with players uh, also helps. So all these things kind of blend together in the stew of my mind. And and I started looking at the layout and saying, what would be rewarding? What is something that is fast that doesn't require a lot of player thought um, and could also present something unique? Uh, utilizing the features of the P3, or the Cosmic Heart Racing playfield, or both. And so what I settled on was an extremely fast game called Ranger in the Ruins. And um, the way this works, uh, all the point values are laid out on the screen when you start playing. Um, You shoot the different point values, higher point values, obviously better, Um, but every so often a ghost will appear on screen and then certain targets change color. When you hit those differently colored targets, a scoop will pop up. And these scoops, there's a, a wall of six scoops that can appear uh, that separate the upper third of the play field from the lower two thirds of the play field. Uh, so it gives you this, this randomized blocker target somewhere that you need to hit. If you hit that scoop, you acquire an item. So the, the trick here is that similar to uh, very old uh, roguelike PC games like Rogue or NetHack, what you're actually doing is stumbling upon a previous player of the game and the last (laughs) item that they're holding. So uh, as you're playing the game, you're actually helping or hindering other players just by nature of playing the game. So this is a unique P3 element here, this internet connectivity. Um, So there's players from all over the world that play Ranger in the Ruins and they all feed the, the item pool um, so it's been extremely gratifying to see that um, continue to grow and, and expand over time. Um, so uh, it is very, very fast, though. Uh, I actually set the magnets, which are in the game, to accelerate the ball always. <laughs> Anytime a ball gets near a magnet, it's throwing it as hard as it can. Um, so uh, the game is, is, as a result... Uh, very fast. Everything happens very quickly. The player doesn't have a lot of time to make complex decisions. Um, You can trap up, but you're losing the uh, capability to earn points as you do that. Um, The game, by default, is a one-ball game. So you can see that's a direct (laughs) correlation to my prior work. Um, And that's because I love... One of the things that I love... Uh, as I started repairing bingo pinball machines was coming home at lunchtime from work and I would fire up a game and the six card games, you could blow through several six card games in just a very short period of time, a lunch break. So I wanted a lunch break game, something that would appeal to a bunch of different players that they could get into quickly and uh, have a good time with really fast and understand the goals of the game very quickly as well
1: what what what's interesting is it's actually um nick uh, slightly more than a lunch break game it's actually what i would call a water cooler game because you're technically playing with people all over the the the, the world not necessarily at the exact same time but you know it's like you're leaving bread cl- breadcrumbs for each other in the cafe, you know, or in the, in the, in the break room at work so that others can, can, can pick up and continue forward off, off the water cooler. So um, it, and, and that, that net connectivity is yet another innovation that's in the P3 and the fact that you can create games quite quickly that communicate with, with the state of other machines.
0: Yes. And um, I work like a maniac. I work uh, a lot and uh, very hard at making games. So uh, the multi bingo, uh, my my wife can attest, you know, uh, all into the night, you know, I'm reading schematics, I'm figuring out the layout of these different games and how everything works. Ranger in the Ruins, same way. So I built it uh, in 72 days, the initial commercial. Oh release. Yes. But in order to do that, I've <laughs> did away with sleep, I did away with eating, you know, anything extraneous in my life that, you know, was not My family, um, who were not extraneous, obviously, um, (laughs) you know, they uh, it just got put to the side while I worked on this, and I just worked on it constantly. Um, So it's 72 days, but it's constant effort um, in order to do that. And and and,
1: and this isn't your day job either. You've got a day job.
0: Yeah, correct. I have a very <laughs> stressful and intensive day <laughs> job as well, um, which has demanding hours and and all kinds of uh, of things. But um, Multimorphica was fantastic. You know, answered any questions that I had. I had fewer than when I created quest for glory so when i submitted the game for their review every commercial game undergoes a review process for multimorphic and i learned quite a few things uh, uh, that i didn't know and hadn't considered uh simple things like for example um making sure that the number of credits are visible at all time uh somewhere um And there were different instances in Attract where I would cover those up with little animations and things. And, you know, they said that is that's a critical component. If this is commercially operated, um, you know, you got to know how much money is in the thing. Um, So things like that uh, are where Multimorphic really helped shape my understanding of commercial pinball software, even with all my experience repairing them, playing them, all that stuff i made all kinds of assumptions like that uh oh i can do this it's you know it's only hiding it for a couple seconds it's not a big deal um yeah it is it is a big deal (laughs) so um anyway that that really has helped shape uh my understanding and they have been extremely uh gracious in in answering all my questions and so so forth so
1: so so nick a a question on that um Yes. You know, you're you're now broaching commercial development or you've broached commercial yes. de- development. Um you're basically going through a certification process. Were you the yes. first third party to go through the certification process? No,
0: you weren't. I, I was not. So there's okay. there's uh, another third party, 86 Pixels, mm-hmm. who uh developed Grand Slam Rally yep. prior to me. Um, so I was the second, third. Party. So
1: so so you were not you were not the 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 initial guinea pig, but one of the, one of the first few, the second the second fact out of the gate. um, yeah. How uh, now you you know you had to choose price for your game and like how um how did how did you come to the conclusion on on what what the what the fair market value for the game is?
0: So it was a number of factors, um, and one of the things that I always try to consider is. Uh, and this comes a bit from my day job is what is saleable? Mm -hmm. So what would I be, what is the price point where I would say, this makes sense. You know, this is a no brainer. And then, you know, what is the price point where I'd say, you know, maybe I need to think about this a little bit and come back to it. And so I settled on 150, but there was a lot of thought that went into that number. Um, it is intensive to develop any pinball game and a commercial pinball game has requirements that homebrew or custom games do not have. And it, it requires a lot of thought and effort um, over and above what you might expect. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is also very different from developing, say, video game software. Um, The uh, nature of pinball, the fact that the ball is wild can create some amazing bugs and uh, interaction things that you would never imagine are possible. Uh, being able to handle those, especially for a commercial environment yep. is critical. Um, so uh, all this feeds into price point. And then there's also, you know, thought about, okay, the user had to pay this amount for the machine, the user had to pay this amount for the module that the game is running on. Um, what is going to be a number that makes sense for for them and for the depth of the game? And you know, there there are a number yep. of factors. Yep.
1: No, it it and um, and it's it, it's 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 completely fair. So you you set a price, you go back and forth with with multi and certification, you make fixes, and eventually your game gets submitted and accepted. Right. Yes. So can you talk um, now, can you talk a little bit about the process once it gets submitted, like what you need to do and what I, or what somebody as the consumer needs to do um, in order to to get
0: that game? So what I need to do is build a complete and compelling experience, um, you know, develop the game, uh, develop marketing materials, if there's any um, for the game and uh coordinate with uh multimorphic on the release and the marketing and so forth so uh that everything dovetails together um so again i can't sing their praises enough but multimorphic uh has been incredible uh in in kind of shepherding me through that process um and uh you know so we came to the conclusion of a particular date to launch. And, uh, I worked with, uh, Kevin Manny at Buffalo pinball and he, uh, he was actually one of the beta testers and he, uh, agreed to, to stream it, um, initially. So that was the and, reveal. And, and, and Kevin it,
1: with, with, uh, from Buffalo pinball is from the excellent podcast, bro. Do you even talk pinball?
0: So absolutely. Um, and, and he, uh, revealed it on the stream And it was available at the same time. So that's the the benefit of the digital game is that you can coordinate these marketing efforts to uh, happen simultaneously. And there's no deliverable outside of the software, um, which is purchasable on Multimorphic's website. And then it's tied to your account. And you can download it to your P3 directly on the P3, which is really cool. or you can download it on their website. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really nicely, uh, built system and and pipeline for development and release. Yeah. It's, Um, it's,
1: it, I, I cannot say how, how smooth the process is. Like I've, you know, I, 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 I've worked in windows and the windows store for, for many years. I I work for Microsoft. I think that's, that's pretty well known. Um, and, the, you know, the ability to have a video games or to have a pinball machine where I can go online, make a purchase of a piece of software and then for it to show up as a download onto my pinball machine, where then it also detects which module is installed and will either lock or unlock the games that I have installed based on the module. It's, it's, it's just a very, very, very slick experience. Um, and then, you know, as you as you make an update to the game. You submit that to, to multimorphic, and then it becomes mm-hmm. available to anybody who's downloaded it and purchased it before um, with 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 the appropriate bug fixes or feature ads. So it 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 really is 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 amazing. So you 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 got your first commercial ga- game out there.
0: Yes. Um it happened.
1: And, and and that was it. There was nothing more, right?
0: That's right. Then I I quit. <laughs> <laughs> Not um,
1: so what what happens next?
0: So, so I'm always trying to challenge myself and I'm I'm working on new things and new capabilities for my own learning as well as for the enjoyment of others. So um, Ranger in the Ruins was a 2D game in the same vein that Quest for Glory was a 2D game. So I knew the 2D capabilities of Unity very well. And I've built my own 3D engines in the past, very rudimentary, not to the level of Unity by far. But I, I know a little bit of the math that's involved in different aspects of the 3D Um, nature. So I wanted to, for my next game, I wanted to do something that was 3D. And my daughter, Sophia, at the time, um, was really big into a game called The Sims. And The Sims is like a a kind of a a life simulator game where you're controlling a a family or, you know, a a person and directing them in their day-to-day interactions with different stuff in a house. So um, she worked with me on the game design for the next game, which was Silver Falls. And that used the heist play field. Now, the way that I pushed myself in different ways with this game, instead of uh, 2D, I went full 3D. uh, And it uses full dynamic lighting. And there are uh, actually different um, three-dimensional elements which are present on the different screens so there's a back box monitor and then the play field monitor and there's there's different things which are happening on those cameras um uh that are rendering those 3d spaces so um that game is really interesting if you compare that to heist which is uh a pretty intense um traditional pinball game where you are uh, you know, trying to achieve various shots on, on the play field, the modes change your context of which shots are important. Um, traditional pinball uh, stuff that you're trying yeah. to do. Very standard
1: and- fan layout. And I will say that heist is, although I love my, my weird L module um, heist is my favorite game on the, on, 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 on the P3, just because of the, the simplicity of the shots, but also the depth of characters on it. So it's, it's a great play field to start with.
0: The, the layout of Heist is incredible. Um, the way that each shot returns to the flipper in different ways. And every shot can be diverted, which is an important uh, aspect of Heist, uh, which isn't necessarily apparent unless you're really looking at it or thinking about it. But um, there are magnets all over the place that can drop the ball in different places. Um, and it is just a very, very clever use of uh, the the shot layout that's there. Um, and it is so uh, fun to shoot. So for Silver Falls, Sophie, uh, Sophia and I really wanted to um, come up with uh, a concept that was similar to her beloved Sims game, right? You know, some kind of life simulator. And what we settled upon was a character that you create that moves through a house. And then in each room of the house, there's a different thing that's happening that requires your attention your pinball attention so the majority of the game is extremely laid back it's very chill uh in comparison to heist which is a a high uh, stakes uh kind of game um silver falls is very laid back and so each shot has no value shown but each shot is worth a different amount of money you're acquiring money you spend it in a shop and Uh, you're furnishing a room. Once the room is furnished, then uh, a timer starts and the game gets very intense very quickly. Each room has its own unique interactions. Uh, A lot of them utilize the ball tracking capabilities of the P3. Um, And I collaborated with uh, Scott DeNisi for the soundtrack for that game. He wrote a number of original compositions and uh, it's, it's... a very unique game that I'm very proud of, of how it turned out. It's, it's, uh, it's very unusual in comparison to something like uh, Ranger in the ruins, which is just high intensity. Um, and uh, this, this is just a, a very different experience. So- um, but one of the, one of the aspects of it that I think is really interesting is just how co-op gameplay fits within it. So uh, on the P3, one of the uh, P3's uh, software features is it, team play is what they call it. It can be co-op or one versus three or three versus one, um, any, any permutation thereof. But Silver Falls is particularly geared towards co-op. So you're all working together to furnish this house. You're all working together to complete these goals in each room. Um, and it is, uh, again, just a very unique experience.
1: So super cool. So that gives you your second commercial game. You then go through the certification process and the, you know, the, the marketing, the, 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 um, the, the price setting, all, all of that. And where does your journey take you from there?
0: So from there, I started working on a physical module. So this is, uh, what became Drained. Um, but in between, there were different uh, aspects of creating Drain that required uh, different pauses in development, uh, particularly for the artwork. So as I was doing the art direction and Molly Baldridge, who uh, is my, my partner, my wife, uh, did all the artwork for Drain. And so there were different aspects of family life or whatever was going on that that required, you know, little bits of time to be carved away from the project. Uh, in order to you know live, uh, so,
1: so 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 Nick, you've recruited the entire Baldrige family to work on all, your
0: almost, <laughs> almost. So my my. Uh, other daughter, Ava, has, has not worked on a game yet, but she does test them all. So, <laughs> Well,
1: um, <laughs> game, game tests, as you said, the ball is wild and, and can create all kinds of, of interesting situations. So, um, so, so you start working on, on a module. Now, you talked yes. about the P3 having a software development kit that you can program against. And you talked it's, about writing software to existing modules. How do you go about making a module?
0: <laughs> it's, it's, uh, so you have the software process which is its own thing. But then you have uh, the playfield design layout um, as well as uh, the constraints and uh, abilities that are facilitated by the P3's design. And you have to um, build things very specifically to fit within the P3's playfield frame. So- And and um, the P3
1: SDK comes not only with software API documentation, but schematics for electrical connections and mechanical uh, CAD drawings uh, and 3D drawings in certain certain cases to actually know what your tolerances are, what your mechanical specifications are, how the how the module has to clip in. I'm, I'm, i you, you know, you, you go ahead. I haven't gone through, I've only looked at the docs. You've gone
0: through the process. So that was exactly what I was about to say. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I did not mean f- to steal your thunder. Sorry. About no, that. no, no, that's great. Um, so, yeah, everything is laid out and it is fantastic. Um, but of course, as with anything, uh, with the SDK uh, software game, with the hardware specs, um, they're just a starting point. So, at that point, you've got to figure out how this thing is gonna get um, made in prototype form. Uh, so I am, I work in kind of a, an old school fashion in that I draw everything by hand. I do it the same way with schematics. So I draw them on a big piece of vellum, um, which is uh, like really thick tracing paper um, that's used uh, by art students. And uh, my my wife, uh, Went to school for interior design. And so she always had a huge roll of vellum. We have a bunch of it left over from when she was in school. And so I'm able to repurpose that for uh, game design. But um, so I drew the whole thing out and figured out tolerances, you know, where the ball needs to travel, how the ball is actually going to be launched to the play field. So that's a unique aspect of the P3 as well. There's not a traditional shooter lane. Uh, so the ball could be launched from a little shooter lane area if you built a little area there for it, Um, but you would need to build the mechanics there and it would cover up a a portion of that screen. So uh, it's probably not a great utilization of the space. So figuring out how the ball will get to the play field and they offer eight different uh, areas where a launch tube could be placed. These are big vertical up kickers, which are mounted in the back of the machine where the actual ball trough is located. And uh, you can pick one, two, all eight of them to launch balls. And uh, so I settled at first, I designed it so that a ball would launch directly from the center. And I thought this is gonna be excellent. Um, This is just gonna make all the sense in the world. And then I started really looking at angles um and again i do things very manually so i'm using protractors and i'm using uh different architectural rules and so forth and just trying to figure out how the geometry is going to work as the ball is bouncing you know this post has rubber this one does not you know how does that function um and then do all the posts need rubber you know what you know, what makes sense uh, in in each context. And so uh, I came to the conclusion that there need to be two launchers. And of course, when you come to that conclusion, then it changes how the software is going to interact with the game. Um, And so everything works cohesively, right? Like everything kind of builds on itself. There's not a way to make a game that I've found where you can really separate this thing from this other thing. The artwork in my games has to work with the artwork that's either already there from the existing game module or it needs to stand on its own and be cohesive with itself. So, like in Drained, you have playfield plastics. Um, That's not something that I've developed for other games. And so, you know, that has to interact with the wooden portion of the playfield, with screen. Everything has to work together. And so, so um, that that's a lot of work, in other words.
1: So here, here's here's what's interesting, tying it back to, you know, all the way back to your maker journey in multi and multi-bingo. The nice thing about the P3 is you've got a platform that you're working mm-hmm. with. Like, yes, you have to do artwork or in your case, your wife uh, 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 worked in the artwork. Um, you have to do programming, you've got to do ball interaction, you've got to do the design of the mechanisms and the design of the game itself. You also have to design for manufacturing, which I'm sure you're going to go into. Um, and then you have to do all that with the interface points to P3. But the nice thing is, you don't have to build the cabinet, you don't have yes. to build... You know you don't have to source the legs, you don't have to uh build up a ball trough or a you know ball, ball shooter yes. mechanisms, um, you don't have to source the t- the the two monitors. Um the the P3 gives you the platform where you can actually focus on the aspects that make it your game. So, do you want to yeah, talk absolutely. about um so, so you you went through the game design process, which mm. any maker would do, okay, right, which is already a hard, hard aspect. Um do you want to talk about if, if there's things specific in the game design that, you know, go for that, but I I'd, I'd like you also to cover the, you know, what, what, what took it from an individual game to a commercialized product.
0: Yeah. So that that's a big journey. And to, and to touch on that, I've got to back up a little bit and no talk about a, an entirely different project. So as I'm working on this, I've, 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 uh, I've hired, uh, a couple of different people to help with the CAD. So I'm not proficient in CAD. I can do little teeny things, but I'm not good at it. So I hired uh, Anthony Swan, uh, who's a friend of mine who is very proficient in CAD. And he uh, took all my measurements and put them into a CAD file. Uh, And then uh, another friend of mine, Coleman Martin, uh, who's also a maker, he's uh, made Greek gods, the pinball machine. he uh, did all the CNC work for me uh, on the prototypes. Um, so without their help, I wouldn't have been able to you know, work, work on this game. But uh, before I get into Manufacture, I started working on Flipper Foxtrot Rhythm Explosion. So I, I paused the game because of, of art concerns, different family things that were going on, and uh, then switched to this other game. And initially, That wasn't going to be a commercial product. I was making it for myself. I'm a huge Dance Dance Revolution fan, and I love rhythm games, particularly Dance Dance Revolution. I think that particular mechanic and and method of interaction is just ingenious. So I wanted to build a generic system that allowed for loading of music with dynamic Uh, note pattern generation. Mm -hmm. But instead I settled on making it a commercial product because I was speaking with a few uh, confidants and they said, sounds really interesting. Um, So I built up some prototypes of my own. And then I said, if I'm gonna make this a commercial product I have to scrap the whole thing and start from scratch. So that's what I did. And I'm really proud of of how that game came out. It works with the Canon Lagoon module. And uh, instead of arrows that are scrolling up the screen, there are indicators of buttons. And the P3 button box has three buttons on each side, red, white, and yellow. The white and yellow buttons are used for flipper, fox Foxtrot rhythm explosion. And then if you miss a note as it scrolls up the screen, a ball will launch, <laughs> and you have to return it using the red buttons. So uh, depending on That's your cool. level of challenge, yeah, depending on, on the, the level of challenge, each Song has five different modes um, that are increase in difficulty. And then there are other optional difficulty modifiers. Uh, so this is uh, just a, a really fun, different way of interacting with the pinball machine. And I thought it was really uh, a unique way, a unique take on that Canon Lagoon Playfield module. Um, so, so you commercialized
1: different. your third game then at that point? Yes,
0: yes. And then it, if, In the middle of developing the fourth game. Right. <sighs> so uh, at this point, I've made so many commercial games. Um, I went ahead and uh, made a, a company um, for amusement only games. And then I started looking into what it would take to bring this fourth game to market. The needs are very different for a physical product versus a software product. Um, so creating a company, all the stuff that's involved with that, um, uh, lots and lots of paperwork and, uh, communication with city and County and yada, 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 state, federal, all that stuff, um, insurance companies, yada, 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 uh, it just goes on and on. But, uh, the exciting part is figuring out the new challenges that are involved with manufacture. Um, so it's sourcing each component part. And figuring out what makes sense to assemble yourself, uh, what makes sense to uh, solder put together, and what makes sense to um, have connectorized, uh, how to build the wiring harnesses. How long should each wire be in this particular portion of the harness? All these things are important. Placement of boards, uh, you know, everything has to work together and it has to be repeatable which is a very, very different concern than if you're making a one-off. Um, so uh, these are things which I thought I had always sort of thought about uh, when making things like the multi bingo. You know, I, I thought, oh, I am so very clever because the the drawer with additional controls has a sensor. So if it falls off or is ripped off the game, the game continues running, it doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's <laughs> not quite clever enough. So, um, Anyway, all all this works together and I, um, after a lot of work, I was able to uh, produce this game and I've been making them ever since. Yeah. Um, So,
1: so, so, so Nick, a a couple of things before you jump, jump, jump to the end. Um, Yes. The first is, has there been a third party physical module for the P3 until this point? I, I am the first. You're the first. Um, so congratulations on that. So you set up a business. Um, now can you quickly cover the theme of trained? So for those that don't know,
0: it is a vampire theme. It is a lightly comedic vampire theme.
1: And Um, the styling of it that your wife did is a very specific type. Do you want to comment on that?
0: It it is uh, Edward Gorey style. So he was a famous uh, North American artist who did a lot of pen and ink drawings. That was what he was famous for. So um, this pen and ink kind of uh, lightly comedic gothic style is is what I had her emulate for. The and game.
1: and the form of the game goes all the way back to your early roots. What's the what's the play style of the game?
0: So the play style is it's a symmetrical playfield layout, uh, which is similar to a lot of wood rail. Uh, pinball games. Um, and the unique feature on this game, there's drop targets, there's a pop bumper, there's a lot of stand-up targets that are arrayed in this very particular uh, style. There's a couple of slingshots on the upper play field. Um, but the, the big uh, kind of gotcha is the gobble hole. So there hasn't been a gobble hole in a production pinball game since 1964. And so this was, this was a, a big return to the gobble hole.
1: And, and the nice um, thing about that gobble hole is you have to hit it in order to score the big points.
0: That's, that's always the catch with the gobble <laughs> hole is you hit it when you don't want to, but when you need to hit it, it becomes very difficult to hit.
1: So, so um, it's quite the amazing journey that you've gone on from, from maker to market um with, you know, with, with. Three uh, digital only games and now a fourth module, a, a module that has, you know, first first uh, third party module. I've no doubt Multimorphic was, again, helpful in in, in, in that entire process.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, you, you know, you have your own manufacturing built up. You've got your own company built up. Um, I will, you know, I want to let you know I will be buying a drained module. Um, I have two more modules coming for Multimorphic that I've already got cash on. Once those get paid, I will be ordering a drain from you. So uh, it well, will be soon. Um, I'm sure you want want me to do that sooner, but it will it will be coming. <laughs> um, and and so, really, what I wanted to to, to end with um, is, you know. In, What's next for you? Um, are you are, are are you done? Will there be will there be more modules? Like what you don't I am not asking you to give away anything you don't don't want to say, but like process-wise, what do you want to do with for amusement?
0: So it's tricky because I'm doing it all. I'm turning all the screws, I'm building all the wiring harnesses, I'm making all the games, I'm doing every physical product that is created by for amusement only games that includes like the speaker panels. I'm making sure that all the artwork is produced to my specifications. All that stuff is involved with manufacture. It's a, it's a big job. And uh, that leaves a little have to
1: get, you have to get commercial space, industrial space where you can actually do that. So
0: in order to be permitted by my city. So um, yeah, it, it, it's a lot. Um, But I need to utilize that space because I have it. So um, yeah, the goal is to keep making trained as long as there's demand and uh, continue making games. And, uh, I've, uh, been working on a suite of updates for all of my commercial games, just kind of bringing them all up to the same standard as drained. Um, and, uh, adding in like my company logo and, and things of that nature, uh, and crediting myself. I didn't credit myself in any of the games that I made. (laughs) I I think
1: you deserve some credit.
0: (laughs) I have looked at it and said, you know, yeah, I, I probably should have put my own name on here somewhere, but, uh, Anyway. uh, So so yeah, it's, there's a lot uh, that I have in the pipeline as well. Um, New games, new, new things, but uh, you know, a piece at a time.
1: So, so Nick, I, I, you know, I I applaud you and, and, and and I'm humbled and honored to, to, to be able to have the time with you. The, the fact and how you, you know, prioritize community, the, you know, what, you know, your journey over multiple decades now to get you from just interest in, in repairing machines and, and how, you know, looking under the play field to how they work all the way to building up a commercial company and building machines. It's, it's absolutely an honor to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate all the time and detail that you put into both all the work that you've done, but also the, the podcast and the interview. So thank you very much on behalf of myself and the listeners.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's it's so great to talk with you, and I'm so glad you're doing this podcast. Uh, there are so many very intelligent and and interesting people in the maker community, uh, of which I've been happy to 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 be a part on the Pindev Slack for many years. Um, and I'm just so thrilled that they're being highlighted through uh, this podcast. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah, and thank you. And I look I look forward to continuing to see you on the Discord and, and, and in the community. Thank you. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for listening. And I can't wait to see what you make.